Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, August 21st, 2020. And we were less than 12 hours out from DC Fandom, is that correct? Yeah, how are you feeling about it, Jim? How Are your molecules vibrating in anticipation? What's going on? I'm actually kind of feeling bad for the DC folks, because remember, they announced this back Back in June 16th, and it was largely because Comic-Con 2020 got shut down in, in April. And, you know, they had this huge aggressive program of stuff going on. And so here was this global 24-hour show, no lines, free, exclusive reveals, DC's biggest stars and teases for DC films and TV shows, comics and yep. games. And then two weeks ago, we got that announcement of that huge layoff at DC Universe and DC Comics. Yeah. Not the greatest timing. No, no. But I think this is kind of a fun model because it's, you know, they're they're only showing things a couple of times. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, they're sort of rerunning the panels later in the day, mm -hmm. but it's not like... It'll be up forever. It's only 24 hours. So mm -hmm. it's kind of fun. You have to kind of sit there and watch all the things kind of roll through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like eight hours of stuff. And, yeah, I'm excited. I, did you see the thing about Ben Affleck coming back to The Flash? Yes, yes. Not only Ben Affleck, but also Michael Keaton. Yes. That's an intriguing idea for a new Flash movie. Yeah, nothing, to say, nothing says The Flash like having 10 different Batmans <laughs> in it. Well, now, Poor Flash. wasn't you know? there for Enter the Spider-Verse, I heard for like like five minutes there was an idea out there, what, bringing back Toby Hooper and... Uh, right. I forget the... the um, <laughs> uh, oh, Andrew Garfield. Yeah, yeah, just bringing them back and folding them in to do voice work for the film. Not a new idea, but I love the idea that this is going to happen. Yes. It sounds very fun. But at the same time, remember, folks, this is an animation podcast, so what Drew and I are really pulling for coming out of DC fandom is I want to hear about a third season of, of Harley Quinn. Yeah, that is it. That's all we need to hear. Okay. We just need those words. It's coming back. Mm -hmm. Season three, HBO Max. Let's make it happen. I mean, come on. It's so good. I hope people are watching it. I don't know. I have no idea what the numbers are, but. It's such good writing, and it's a genuinely funny show that gets oddly emotionally satisfying at times. Yes, and the relationship we've talked about between yeah. Poison Ivy and <laughs> Harley Quinn is really wonderful and sort of progressive and... Uh, it's just great. Beautifully animated. Really, really well done. Yeah. And, and speaking of animated series that are sometimes oddly emotionally satisfying, you have news of DuckTales. Yes, it's coming back, Jim. Are you ready? It's about damn time. And tell folks about the Darkwing Supersize episode, right? Yeah, there's, an, there's going to be an hour-long episode devoted to Darkwing Duck. Mm -hmm. And the way that Frank Angones, who's the showrunner on... on DuckTales introduced the new schedule for the September episodes on Twitter was saying, let's get dangerous. So I feel like there's, this is going to have a, some big, big Darkwing components. But as we know, mm -hmm. it's never a straight answer on DuckTales. There's going to be a twist. But we've got new episodes on September 21st, 28th, 
October 5th, which is the Halloween episode. Mm. So if there's not a reference to the Trick or Treat short, which is also going to be on Disney Plus in September, I will eat my hat live on the show. Okay. Then an episode on October 12th. And then October 19th is Let's Get Dangerous, the hour-long episode. And October 26th is the last of this new batch. And I don't know why we're only getting six, Jim, Mm -hmm. but let's all remember... How screwed up the Gravity Falls schedule was oh, many years ago. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now you're needlessly poking and hurting me. That was so strange to watch how those episodes kind of stuttered out. And then we got that final run of the last four. I'm still happy I got my Amphibia, my curator, but... Right. Do you have the do you have this Shout Factory box set, Jim, of Gravity Falls? Not yet, no. Okay. Okay. You should get it. All right. It's okay. really wonderful. There's a lot of great stuff on it. Okay. And since we were just talking about Disney+, Plus, do we want to talk about Earth to Ned? I think it looks pretty cute. What do you think? Well, you know, first of all, again, remember that this, and I want to stress here that people are looking at it going, oh, Muppets. It's like, no. No, this is Henson. We have to actually clarify this these days because Disney owns the Muppets. Just recently, I was talking with somebody about how they pulled Jim Henson's name off of Muppet Vision in Florida. And that kind of bugs me because this is the very last thing Jim Henson worked on. But again, it's all about branding. And right now, Disney, it's Disney's Muppets. Jim Henson's Muppet Vision 3D copyright. There we go. Restricted. I remember that. That was that that must have been from the family, is my guess. Oh, gotta be. Gotta be. But yeah. whereas Earth to Ned is actually a show for Disney Plus, which is being produced by the Henson Company. They've been doing some some interesting stuff lately. Uh the Dark Crystal series that they did last year. And I was kind of sad to hear from you that we're not going to get a season two because it costs way too much to make and all that. So I'm still very supportive of the families. Love to see that they're, they're still in there. But this, it's a talk show. Didn't we just talk on the last show about the Patrick Starr show that's coming? Patrick Starr and Elmo has a talk show. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not even the only puppet with a talk show right now, Jim. (laughs) Let's just think about that. But- I love how creature shoppy mm-hmm. he looks. Oh, you no, know? no, I, I totally agree. Though, I actually got reached out to by somebody who's who's working on the Patrick Star Show. And oh. just mentioned that it's a lot funnier and solider show than the logline suggests. Okay. There's a couple of interesting bends on characters, some fun people who will be involved in this. And if I say any more, I'm going to get in trouble. So I should shut up now. And and speaking of of Henson-related stuff, you also mentioned the Storyteller AR. Yeah, there's going to be a Storyteller AR experience. I'm assuming it's sort of a uh, Pokemon Go-type scenario, but it's being narrated and overseen by Neil Gaiman, which is very cool. (laughs) So you wander around and find Hans your hedgehog? Maybe those devils that came out of the bag. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, (laughs) now I'm on board. Yes, Uh, yes. Okay. I don't but know yeah. I don't know what the story is, but I know that he's had a lot of involvement with Henson. He did Do you remember the Mirror Mask movie that they made yeah. um, that was based on a Gaiman story and I think yeah. Gaiman is sort of like the storyteller guy mm. now, but uh it's very exciting. I don't know. Okay. It, it would be interesting to see if you know you you were on uh what what was the the podcast that you were on, Jim, or the kind of live video? It was called Dig a Little Deeper. It's by the Laughing Place folks. 
They made the mistake right. of inviting me on to talk about the Muppets. And an hour and 45 minutes later, it's like, please, Jim, shut up. We have lies. We, <laughs> we, we have to move on. I was just happy that somebody else liked the, the Jim Henson hour. But what was interesting was you were talking about the deal that Disney was supposed to make in 89 and didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and they would have gotten the storyteller and all this other stuff had Everything. that gone through. Everything. And yeah. I'm fascinated by the period between 1990, when the deal went south and the Henson family broke off relations with Disney, and 2004, the gulf of years between there, where Henson was kind of trying to find its way, and Disney and and Henson kept bumping up against one another, but never quite consummating the deal. And in the middle of, of that is when we got the Pinocchio that Henson did with, uh, what is it, Jonathan Taylor Thomas was oh, the voice? Was awful. Awful. Yeah, yeah, but but again, great puppeteering, yes. great physical puppet created by the folks at the Creature Shop. Well, you know, they're doing the they're doing the puppets for Guillermo's Pinocchio are, as well. Are they really? Yes. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but w- whatever, we'll say it. The Hanson Company is doing the puppets for Guillermo's stop motion movie. Just earlier this week, we we finally got a voice cast. We've got Ewan McGregor as Cricket, <laughs> and if they if they're sticking really close to the, to the original Carlo Collati story, Ewan maybe has three lines. <laughs> Cricket yeah. doesn't make it very long in no. the original, though. We got uh, Tilda Swinton. We've got Christopher Waltz, Clayton Benchett. It sounds like a killer voice cast, and, and honestly, I think we've all been waiting for this from Guillermo. I'm glad this is arriving before the Zemeckis Hanks redo of. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, speaking of which, though, I want to talk about that wonderful interview that you did with Kirk Weiss and Gary Trousdale. Oh, did you watch it? It it that is just it, it's one of my favorite things oh, I've seen. Oh, good. But let's talk about the, the news that got broken out of that about when these two guys who've made all these wonderful films got talking about the live action Disney redos and what they thought. Well, I was a little surprised because I thought they had at least made some money. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me preface this by saying that you and I have talked about this before, mm-hmm. and the screwed up way that the. Uh, unions for animation are different from the unions for live action filmmaking mm-hmm. prevent a lot of the people that were working on the live action prevent people from who were working on the animation to get credit or compensation on the live action and it's especially galling on stuff like The Lion King which is basically a shot for shot remake of oh, the animated yeah. movie yeah. but I had sort of thought that the directors would get a, I mean, they get credit. And so I Mm -hmm. thought that they would get compensation and they said they have not made a penny off of Beauty and the Beast, which is one of the more frame for frame remakes out there. And I just thought that was very disappointing. So it it is, it is. And especially when you consider given the circumstances that Beauty and the Beast was made under, okay, everybody pack up and go to upstate New York and work out of a, you know, a residence in no pressure at all, but, you know, we have to have this out for November of 90, 91, right? 91, yeah. You would think a token payment. Wasn't Don Bluth an executive producer on the live action? Don Bluth or Don Hahn? Don Hahn, excuse me. Sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm he mixing was. my Don It sounds name. like they uh, were only credited because Don Hahn 
asked the the studio to, which I thought was very sad. Aww. Yeah. I encourage people to watch the whole hour, though, because they get into some stuff that I've never heard him talk about, like the making of Cranium Command and mm-hmm. some other stuff. It's a great, great interview. So we've got Guillermo's stop motion Pinocchio with puppets and such that are designed by Henson. It's so weird that we're getting, you know, news about this project and really looking forward to this. And at the same time, we get the news about the layoffs at Leica. Yeah. 15% of the staff let go? 15% of the staff. Apparently, there are almost 400 employees, which is pretty substantial. So Mm. about 56 employees got let go. They are currently in pre-production on something, but... I don't know when that's going to get done. If I, th- I think they said one of the reasons was that that um, safety was a concern of just having that many know. people. Have you ever you've been to Leica before? Right? Yeah, a number of the animation studios have talked about how they they've kept chugging forward and people can work at home. I mean, it's difficult. It's kind of hard to imagine the sort of last minute retooling that we saw on Frozen Two. You know, from Into the Unknown. Are going on when everybody is zooming in. Though I guess it sounds hypocritical to say that, given if we think about the number of times the Lopez's are shown calling in from their apartment in New York. So what the hell do I know? On the other hand, with stop motion, so often you know, it's not a question of you can do the stop motion at home. You know, you have to have the set that's locked down. You have to have the camera rig that's locked down. You have to be able to light it. It's just, it's not realistic to expect that somebody could do that at home. But it's just sort of, <laughs> they've done such a great job of moving yeah. the art form forward. In fact, one of the reasons I'm looking forward to September is that this is the time of year where Paranorman starts being run virtually every night. And I just love that movie. They did such a nice job with it. I don't want Leica to go down. And I know laying off 15% of the staff isn't you know, necessarily a canary in the coal mine, but it is concerning. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about how it seems like sometimes that they are mm-hmm. very close to yeah. going under. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just really disappointing because they make great movies, but they've never had that, like, Toy Story moment. No, no. I don't think, seriously, they produced a dud. I mean, no. Kubo and the Two Strings is is an, still an amazing film, holds up today. The one, I think, that misfired was Trolls. Box Trolls, yeah. Box Trolls, yeah. For some odd reason, that was an exercise in almost Monty Python- Ardman type stuff. In fact, you know, the fact that they, they have a character that is obsessed with cheese as he is, you know, it's like, wow. I mean, well, you know, you couldn't get Wallace and Gromit. I know. And I was so excited about that one. That was the one I did the quote unquote set visit for. And I got mm-hmm. to go to like, uh, and it was so fun. And mm-hmm. then it was like, ooh, this one's not great. But yeah. I mean, yeah. if that's the worst movie you're putting out and it's still yeah. pretty cute, then they've okay. done a great job. I feel like they actually do art. They have really uh, pushed forward the art of stop motion. Whereas, you know, the folks over at DreamWorks are, they are a a very commercial animation studio. In fact, I was just updating my schedule. And it's like, okay, it looks like (laughs) all of the release dates for 2021 and 2022 are looking 
relatively solid. So it's like, okay, I'll update my thing. And I was just amazed at the number of DreamWorks sequels that are still coming. We've got Boss Baby 2. Somebody told me the story for Boss Baby 2 who went to a screening before Mm -hmm. All Hell Broke Loose. And Boss Baby 2 sounds insane. I don't even remember what the plot details were, but they were genuinely crazy. So... Mm -hmm. I cannot wait to see what Boss Baby 2 brings us, Jim. Speaking of, of baby or, or younger versions of characters, we also have news of Madagascar a little wild. Yes. Did you see that this is airing on Hulu and Peacock, which I thought was interesting? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Those licensing deals are getting even more complicated, Jim. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Uh, who gets it first? I think they get them simultaneously. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but can I assume from the title this is basically their Muppet Babies or? It's their Muppet Babies. It's in a similar art style, and I'm sure the same vendors that they use for stuff like uh, the Spirit Show or Mm -hmm. Troll Hunters. So, it's that kind of like limited CGI Mm -hmm. animation. And yeah, it's just the characters as cute little animals. That's the whole, that's the shtick. Hmm. Who cares? That's why. Well, you know, but it's inter- again, you, you mentioned spirit and we talked previously about the spirit feature that's coming out, which, again, has really nothing to do with the Matt Damon spirit thing that was done hand drawn, you know, back in the day. This is uh, a continuation of the highly successful Netflix series, but just deciding to go theatrical with it. And I was wondering if. Guillermo's Trolls Project, the feature that's coming out to put the cap on the his magic series. Yes. Uh, it was one of those chicken or the egg things. I was wondering, which of these got greenlit first? The spirit going theatrical or the Trolls feature going? I know. I wish the Trolls would go through theatrical, but again, who knows when we're going to be in a movie. Are movie theaters opening near you, Jim? Just a couple of towns over are the Regal Hooks It is showing New Mutants. And I actually, I I sat and talked with Nancy about this. It's like, well, you can book a ticket. And I went in through Fandango. They were numerous pages, you know, mentioning about COVID and, you know, your responsibility and so on and so forth. But I was the first person, evidently, who bought a ticket for this show. I had my choice of any seat in the hall and I chose D4, dead center in in the theater. Now I just have to figure out where I can get a deep diving suit. Yes. I was going to say, I was going to read you the headline on the AV Club article. Which Please is? Please don't go to a movie theater. It's just about the last thing I do right now, says yeah. expert. So. I actually checked uh, New Hampshire's COVID rates, and we've had a tiny uptick. That's like, you know, five or six people. I mean, we've- Well, there's only 10 people in the whole state, Jim, so. <laughs> That's it, exactly. And this is how I rationalize my decision. It's like, well, all right, if I go to the the first show on the first day, that's probably when the movie theater will be cleanest. Any movie theater in America is a Petri dish on its very best day. And so I'm, I'm kind of hoping that just the natural terribleness of, of your local movie theater will kill COVID. My only problem is, and this can't be right, but they were listing the the showtime for the movie, and it was supposed to run from one fifteen to four fifteen, and it's like this is a three hour long X Men spinoff. It's like no, 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 no. that can't be, that no. can't be. 
Well, I can't wait to hear your your experience next week. And if it it doesn't work out, Drew, we can always you know I I can podcast from from my hospital bed. Yeah, you know, <laughs> great, Jim. Great, great. Now you've made me feel all grubby. So okay, I gotta go do get some hand sanitizer. But when we get back, we're gonna talk about uh, Drew's. Wonderful story you just posted over on Collider, behind the scenes on the making of Disney's Black Cauldron. You and I have a fascination for this period in Disney animation because... Because it sucks? Well, you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> I chart this period actually from, from Robin Hood which was released to theaters in November of 73. And there's a lot of people who've already written about the number of pieces of footage from earlier Disney films, Snow White and Aristocats and that sort of thing, that was retraced and dropped into Robin Hood because Wooly Reitherman, the gentleman who was in charge of the movie just felt that there weren't enough talented people left at Disney Animation to really animate these scenes. So they borrowed footage from earlier movies. Well, Floyd always said that was a bigger pain in the ass than actually doing a new sequence. I would imagine it would be because it's yeah. like if you look at the phony King of England from Robin Hood and, and watch that dance number with Maid Marian and like yeah. the pig that comes in where they, they traced Snow White and she's dancing with Doc. And it's like, yeah, just to have to take the essence of the animation, the actual dance move, and then to have to draw a new character on top of that rough shape. It's like, oh, just ridiculously labor intensive. And it's also like we haven't, Animation hasn't come further than we were in 1937. Like, yeah. it, it, I don't know. It, didn't, it never made sense to me. I, I think that Robin Hood looks very good mm. and borrowed character elements aside, mm -hmm. too. I mean, every single one of those characters was just from the Jungle Book. But Pretty much. You know. Pretty much. But Disney, after they got that out the door recognized that this was a problem, that between the way the staff was aging, the number of people who were retiring, they had to do something. So in, in 1975, that's when they start the CalArts program, the character animation program, with the idea that this would be a feeder program for Walt Disney Animation Studios. That And was it the first year where it's like Musker and Brad Bird and... Tim Burton. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. This starts up in 75. While this is going on, The Rescuers is in production. And you just joked about how all those characters got lifted from the Jungle Book. And there was like a two and three year period where Bernard and Bianca were rescuing a polar bear from a zoo that was voiced by Louis Prima, you know, King Louis from Jungle Book. Did you ever hear about this? No, I never heard about that. Yeah, I mean that was the story for you know for, of the junk. Uh, excuse me, the rescue was for years, and it was only very late in the game that okay, let's let's go with the little girl, let's go with Penny. But even then, the villain there was a good three months where the villain of the rescuers was Cruella Deville. Oh, really? Yeah, that's this. In fact, if you Google Cruella. And Rescuers, there's this amazing piece of concept art where it's Cruella sort of leaning against a, a fireplace. and But instead of furs around her, she's got 
two alligators around her neck, you know, that, that sort of forming a cape. But Madame Medusa, eventually it was decided, eh, you know, that do we really want to go back to Cruella? And more to the point, because they were not doing the type of xerography that they did on 101 Dalmatians back in 61. This was a much more sophisticated version with Rescuers. In fact, Rescuers was one of the very first films where they use different colored lines before they took them into ink and paint. So, you know, some characters were outlined with gray lines and brown lines and that sort of thing. So uh, Cruella wouldn't have had the same look if they did, you know, they reused her. So, but so it's yeah. very disco in the, yeah, these yeah. drawings, yeah. And the other thing that people need to remember about The Rescuers Down Under, it comes out summer of 77. That's the same year that Star Wars comes out. And it, and Rescuers gets killer reviews. I mean, people hailed it as, you know, oh my God, look at this this wonderful muscular return of, of Disney feature animation. And But at the same time, while that's going on, they have no time to celebrate because these guys are rushing to finish Pete's Dragon, which comes out in November of that same year. And a lot of why Don Bluth wound up leaving the company and taking the quarter of the animation staff with him was what happened on Pete's Dragon in order to finish that film on time. And in fact, your buddy Don Hahn was a, a production coordinator on that one, right? Or, right, yep, yeah. So he had a front, front row seat for the, the, the abuse that was heaped on the animation staff. Because remember, that when they were shooting Pete's Dragon, he was supposed to be invisible, it was only after they began, you know, assembling the footage and realizing, Jesus, this is a cheat. And, you know, they were only, you were only supposed to see Elliot in one dream sequence. And they realized they had to go back and put more and more dragon in the movie. And this just meant the animation staff. There were times when they had animators sleeping under their desks because they needed to meet a footage quota. They needed to get so much stuff done so it could then be inked and then put into the, you know, the finished film. So there were a lot of people who genuinely had it tough on Pete's Dragon. They've got all these new kids coming in and they decide, okay, we're going to do something ambitious. We're going to do our Bambi. That leads to Fox and the Hound. And I don't think Kirk and Gary talked at all about that because they were in Florida, right? Yeah, I, I think that they didn't have a great time on Black Cauldron, which is why they didn't talk to me about it. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it's, it was an incredibly fraught time. You know? I don't know. A absolutely. September of 79, in the middle of production of Fox and the Hound. And, and in fact, supposedly one of the reasons, you know, it was not just that the staff was treated poorly at Pete's Dragon. It was the fact that they were making their Bambi and they wanted to do things like it had been done with the original Bambi. They wanted ripples on water. They wanted misty woods and that sort of thing. And, and Disney kept cutting these things. And, and not only that, there was the famous story about Trooper, the dog that's Copper's, the character that yeah. Pat Buttram voices the movie. Yes. He was he legitimately, two-thirds of the way through production, he died when he got hit by the train. And that was what was supposed to send Copper to decide that, you know, he has to, you know, he's going to get even with Todd. His, you know, his friend got killed because he was, he was chasing Todd over the, the railroad bridge. And they do a couple of test screenings 
80% of the film was still in pencil. I was invited there because I had been buying artwork, Disney animated cells from this gallery in Acton, Massachusetts. And they invited the gallery owner to go to this, this screening. So he took me along. But it was the two of us and like 15 busloads of kids. And they showed the whole Fox and the Hound and, and the Pat Bertram dog dies. And the little kids cry for like five minutes afterwards. You can't even hear dialogue. And it was one of these things where it's like, well, yeah, kids were sad when Bambi's mom died too, but she doesn't show up later with like a Band-Aid around her head like, oh, I made it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. You know? <laughs> and, and that was the thing. They decided two-thirds of the way production, so it's like, oh, the Pat Bottrom dog can't die. And the younger animators is like, he gets hit in the face by a train. You don't walk away from that. Right. That was Disney management at the time. And they just, you know, Bluth realized, we're never going to be able to make good movies here. We're hobbled by people who don't respect us, who make us work horrible hours. Coupled with the fact that, you know, when we try to tell good stories, they won't let us. So that's why he took them out the door. And I think that's the thing I love about the story you did for Collider is because you you caught that that air at the studio. The, the notion that Black Cauldron wasn't necessarily put into production because people thought it was going to be a really good movie. Black Cauldron was put into production because Don Bluth was out there talking about Disney Animation Studio, about how they're not going to make, they don't make ambitious movies anymore. Right. And, you know, Ron Miller was like, you want ambitious? I'll show you ambitious. You went through all of the press accounts from that period. And, and how many different times did you have people talking about, this is going to be our Snow White? Yeah. From the material they were working off of, how did anybody think this was going to be Snow White? Well, you know, somebody told me recently that the books are really good and they have a very clean narrative and that they should have just followed that. But mm -hmm. I think that they, I mean, the impression I got was that Joe Hale and everybody else was just, they were so overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. They they were really pitting the older animators against younger animators, even in the press, like that press account that I reproduced from 78 from the mm -hmm. New York Times. Yeah. It's all about... The younger animators aren't up to the task, so we're not going to make our release date. It's just unbelievable to me. And they, they quoted all the old farts that were saying, you know, that they can't get it done and we'll stay here until we, we, we die and all this stuff. And it was just like, oh, my God, of course, they're, like nothing good could come out of this. One of the things I loved about your article was the moment where he cited where, you know, when your producer is, you know, again, Joe Hale is describing your film as, well, the problem with this yes. is it's like, I'm not going to go buy a ticket to, you know, when the producer says, well, the problem with the movie is, it's yes. you know, oh. I mean, and, and, you know, all the casting trouble, the fact that What's-Her-Name was on a TV show on the Disney Channel saying, here's where I am, you know, voicing the part of That's Elon right, Haley Mills. Yeah. Yeah, Haley Mills. And it's like, oh, sweetie, this is going to look very different in a couple of years. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was an amazingly screwed up production. and Well, just and at the same time, so out of step with what was actually going on in Hollywood at the time. I mean, you know, for example, uh, you mentioned Haley Mills, uh, you know, that Joe Hale, at, at one point they hired Jonathan Winters to voice the King of the Fairies. Which is the stupidest scene in the whole movie. Oh, God, I hate, yes. I hate that scene. And it was like three minutes longer, too, or something. 
But there's a, a, a number of folks who have tried to sort of reconstruct the cutscenes from Black Cauldron, and you know, you can go on YouTube and they, they put together some some fascinating videos, and they actually have the storyboards of the original opening of the movie, and they show the Horn King's army moving through the countryside, burning villages, and there's this two and three panel storyboard thing where you see the fair folk flying into a cave under a tree and then rolling a rock up behind them. So the idea is that they recognized it was a dark time and they went into hiding. So that that, oh, okay. was, that was actually set up in the original opening of the movie. So the notion that magic had disappeared from the world, the, the fairies had gone into hiding. That's why when you see that ridiculous scene where they're underground and they're hiding under the pond and Dobby, whatever his name is, is fixing the, the magical barrier. But anyway, Joe Hale hires Jonathan Winters. And Jonathan evidently does a wonderful job to record everything. And then Joe decides to cut him from the movie because his voice is too recognizable. And in 92, we have Aladdin, basically, you know, Jonathan Winters Jr., you know, Robin Williams. Uh, and half the reason that movie was celebrated because it's like, oh, my God, this is, you know, that's Robin Williams doing that voice. They couldn't give anybody a reason to want to go see the movie. So they had to take him out. Uh, but you know an anecdote that Don told me that I didn't know and I, did, mm -hmm. I couldn't fit into the article but that yep. he hired George Scribner George's very first job was to mm -hmm. animate the wings on the fair folk oh can you imagine I mean and, and for those who don't know George he went on to do Oliver and Company and mm -hmm. Rescuers Down Under and he has been huge for the last 20-30 years in, in uh, Imagineering Oh, yeah. I mean, no, no, uh, no, he's been a real powerhouse there. So, I mm -hmm. mean, I think it's just funny that that was his first job was animating wings on the fair folk, the stupidest characters <laughs> to ever be in a Disney movie. <laughs> and and uh, by the way, you are aware of Tinkerbell's cameo in that scene, right? Oh, God. I think I read about it and I just mm -hmm. could not bring myself to watch it again. It's literally at the tail end of the scene when they're they're sort of flying everybody out of the cave that you know the fair folk have agreed to to help them find the black cauldron and so there's the moment where they basically fly them out of the pond but there's a massing of fairies in the left hand corner of this what was supposed to be a 70 millimeter piece of animation and in there in the crowd is in fact tinkerbell it's like she's an eye test did you know that the production went to Korea at the end? <laughs> I did not. I love that that, that Don story about that. You know, the whole notion was we just got to get this done. We got to get this out the door. Yeah. And you do a great job of delineating how it was basically in development hell for, for years. You know, there was oh, that, yeah. hey, do we do this as live action? And if we do it animated, I how mean, do we tell the story? When Bluth left, they said he had been working on it for six years. Yeah, yeah. But you had an angry Ron Miller who was determined to prove Don Bluth wrong, that Disney could, in fact, do an animated film. So, you know, it reminded me of when Spielberg and Katzenberg and David Geffen launched DreamWorks SKG in 94. And I forget which member of the business press wrote this article. Basically, what they said was that Katzenberg was angry that he'd been forced out from Disney. He felt he wasn't getting enough credit for the success of, of Lion King, which was, again, 94. It was huge. I'm, you know, blotted out the sun. And they just talked about 
you know, they looked at, at Geffen, Spielberg, and Katzenberg getting together, you know, to launch a studio just basically to, to get back at Disney. And it's just sort of like, you know, revenge isn't usually a good business plan. You know, in a weird sort of way, greenlining Black Cauldron, because, you know, I'll show you that we can make a good movie. And it's like, he spent six years trying to make that movie and he couldn't get it done. And now you're going to do this? But the parallel project in the very same stories where Disney talks about Black Cauldron and, you know, this ambitious film they're making, they also talk about the next generation Fantasia they want to make. You've heard of Musicana, right? Oh, yeah. That was where the Emperor's Nightingale starring Mickey Mouse, that was the thing that John Lasseter was working on before he worked with Glenn Keane on Where the Wild Things Are. But they were going to use music from Fats Waller and do, mm -hmm. in fact, when I was watching Meet the Robinsons and, you know, they showed the jazz singing frogs in the middle of that movie and it just sort of like... I know I've seen that character before. And it's like they had developed, you know, very similar characters for Musicana. If you but want to see good photos of that uh, in the, what is it, the Disney that never was? There we go. There yeah. we go. You know, and there was also, in a weird sort of way, one number they wanted to use Beatle music. There was one where they wanted to use almost Lobo M uh, type African choral music for another piece. You know, you had these two ambitious projects launched because Disney wanted to show that they could, in fact, make an ambitious animated film again. And they still had to finish Fox and the Hound at this point. That, that <laughs> still doesn't make it out till July of 81. Yeah, and then, I mean, Miller blamed Bluth for that, for sure. Mm, yeah. Um, but, yeah. Listen, and, nobody and, was having a good time back then. No, Jim. nobody. 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 I love that you were able to chase down folks like Dave Bossert. And likewise, I love Don's story about how, in a weird sort of way, he learned so much about animation production. Because, would, 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 no, it's, it's Dave who Dave talks about it. Dave said that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he actually had to go work with the folks in an ink and paint for a while, right? Or, yeah. I mean, that's how desperate they were. Dave was brought in as an effects animator, and he was kept on as an ink and paint guy. And so he learned. He said he learned every step of the production, the xerography process, which was a little bit different there. Mm -hmm. It was that weird sort of in-between process that only lasted a couple of years. That's right. That's right. They yes, actually, okay. I didn't put this in the story, but they actually won a technical achievement award for that process. And it, I think it only lasted until Rescuers. So, you know, it was very brief, but the article has a lot of great stories that I certainly had never heard. I mean, well, fact I, that I, it, you know, you know Andreas it, was going to go to to Bluth at one point. Could you believe uh -huh. that? Think about it. The poor guy moves over from Austria, Germany, Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf. That's right. And and so comes here to live his dream and it arrives at, at the most toxic time in Disney history, or, you know, the, the, the animation studio. And in fact, you know, we should be so grateful to uh, John Musker and Ron Clements for basically building the lifeboat to take away from the Titanic. You know, that they had that teeny tiny team that yes. was working on Basil of Baker Street. And honestly, if, if they didn't have that prepped. Well, and it sounds like, you know, what, that, I, that, that quote I dug up where they said they had to repitch Great Mouse Detective to the new regime because what everybody was saying to me was like, no, we didn't think animation was actually going away because Great Mouse Detective was already in production. But mm -hmm. what Ron and John said later was that, yeah, it was in production, but 
we had to go back to Katzenberg and Eisner and pitch it again and sort of get it formally greenlit, even though we had been working on it for a couple of years. So I think I think the studio was in a much more precarious place. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, there's a f- famous story about that day. They literally took all of the boards that they had and lined the hallway on in the old animation building. And it was such a crazy time that Eisner and Katzenberg came in on a Saturday. And Ron and John started at one end of the hallway with Michael and Jeffrey and spent like an hour and a half slowly walking them down the hallway, just walking them through the whole film. And at the end, Katzenberg and, and Eisner were like, I don't know if this is going to be a good film. I, you know, I, I have no clue. I, I have no... Uh, you know, understanding of animation. So it's, but it, it seems okay. Uh, let's go forward. But, but the very next, you know, the Monday they come in and there's a memo that's gone out and that from here on in every animated film had to have a traditional script prepared that Katzenberg and Eisner just were not going to do this again. They were not going to yeah. walk down a hallway, you know, and have a film pitch them. They want it before it even got to the boarding. They wanted to be able to hold the script in their hand, take it home, read it, and evaluate it just like they were the live action slate. And and speaking of the live action slate, I love that you found out about you know my science project and how that was, you know the, the I think that to me is my favorite part of the the story that that became where you know well you know we took the dog and it's gone to live on a farm. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> yeah, that was the farm upstate for yeah. the Walt Disney Animation Studios crew. Yeah, I mean Dave just explaining that people would leave and mm-hmm. then they would never come back. It was like okay, I I get it, I get it. But yes, if you want funny anecdotes like that, you'll get a lot. I mean, the the fact that Don was with one of the the directors and and he was looking downstairs to the chaos beneath him on the first floor in animation and said, "You think there's a drug scene down there?" <laughs> and Don going, "No, no, no, I don't think it'll, you know." So you know, oh, that's killer. That's it's killer. great. It's All right. Great. Well, again, folks, really seriously, if you if you did not catch. Drew's uh, Black Cauldron piece over on Collider this week. You really have to head over there and get it. It's, it's super, super job. And, and yeah, from somebody who's been trying to get his arms around that movie forever, you did a great job. Though I, I will say this much. In fact, you and I talked about this the other day. I was disappointed that you took away one of my favorite stories, you know, about the holograph that, you know. Oh, Yeah. You have heard the same stories I have, Jim, that they were designing something in mm-hmm. sort of in theater yeah. for uh, this. I don't know what you, you and I have not figured out what scene it was supposed to be for. But and I said to, to Dave, like, well, you, you were working on special effects. Was this ever a thing? And he said it was never brought up to him. And he thinks that it was some kind of cockamamie scheme by some of the Imagineers because Tokyo Disneyland and Epcot were both throttling down and they were going to lay off like hundreds of people. So he thought that it was some Imagineers kind of like trying to save their ass and save their job mm-hmm. to come up with this whole hologram scheme that never would have worked. And he, he you know, he likened it to Fantasia and the mm-hmm. implementation of the Fantasound sequence, yeah. which yep. Yep. would have just hobbled uh, Dark Crystal further if they had to pay for these, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of theater upgrades, you know. No, so. I, I, I totally agree. D23 did an event at Epcot, uh, I want to say for the 30th anniversary? 
But they did a presentation in the uh, World Showplace where they, they showed footage of never-built Disney attractions and just mentioned that, you know, we would make, you know, we develop rides that didn't get built. And they quickly clicked through a number of them. And one of the images was for a Black Cauldron ride. I think the image was just of the load-unload area. But they showed it was, you know, kind of maelstrom-y in that it was a boat ride. The Horn King wound up being the finale of the Cinderella Mystery Tour in Tokyo. Yes. And so you have to wonder that, A, was this hologram thing initially developed for that? Or was it for this ride? You know, at a time when people at Imagineering were trying to save their jobs after Epcot and uh, Tokyo opened. There must have been a, a, at least a couple of people who worked on this Black Cauldron ride. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. But while we're waiting on that, you know, and if you're looking for entertaining things to do, there is, of course, Light the Fuse. And you know, <laughs> There Drew's- is always Light the Fuse, Jim. I've said this before, but like Paramount has no interest in promoting these, these movies kind of like in the off time. So... Mm-hmm. We have become the unofficial official outlet for all that stuff. So we take our we take that very seriously, Jim, and we'll be talking about Tom Cruise's hairstyles until the bitter end. So well, take away I, our microphones. So what's coming up this week? Uh, well, the one that we just posted today was the last part of our Kevin Yeager interview, the three-part Kevin Yeager, um, oh. which is really cool. He talks a lot about face-off mm-hmm. this week and adaptation. He did the he did Nick. Cage's fat suit for that movie. Did when he he's, really? Yeah, when oh. he's playing he, when he's playing Charlie Kaufman, he did the fat suit, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool. And yeah, so next week we've got Chiabella James, who is a, was a set photographer for Fallout, and she's the daughter of the guy that that shot the photos for a bunch of the other movies, which is really cool. They're like the only kind of father daughter set mm. photographer team, and we've got. Some great episodes with Dan Mendel, who mm-hmm. shot Rise of Skywalker and all sorts of crazy movies, Star Trek 2009. He's amazing, so he's going to he's gonna talk to us about shooting Mission Impossible 3. And we, sh- we recorded that a long time ago, but I remember it being really awesome, so I'm really excited for that. So always got new episodes coming up, Jim. What's so enjoyable for me about Light the Fuse is so many people just focus on actors and writers. And, you know, you're a multidisciplined show and it's just, I love how you pop the hood on, you know, all of these genuinely talented people who work on lesser known aspects of filmmaking, but because these are the the Mission Impossible movies, they're the very best people. Right. By the time you're asked to come work on a, a Mission Impossible movie, you're somebody who's at the top of their game uh, yes. and often has to think around corners. I mean, every time I watch a, a, you know, a Mission Impossible movie it's, these days, it's like, how the hell did they do that shot? Yeah, and yeah, we, we're working on getting Teddy Newton, uh, oh. the great artist who was the voice uh, on the t- other end of the telephone in Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. So he he delivered the mission briefing in those two movies. And so oh. we are looking forward to talking to him. You know, a, a genius animator, but a great yeah. voice actor and uh, someone who has a, you know, we love picking out like people who had a small part, but mm. whose, whose part really meant a lot to people. So that's sort of what we're doing. 
maybe a small part, but often these people have huge careers and, and that's half the fun is listening to the, the Venn diagram, the other films they worked on and all that. So anyway, folks, seriously, if you're not listening to light diffuse, why are you here? Um, (laughs) But after you finish listening to Light the Fuse, if you're looking for something else to listen to, uh, we got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We got uh, Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. Going to be recording a new one with him uh, this coming weekend. We got uh, Looking at Lucas Home with Dan Z. Don't care for him. Don't (laughs) care for him. What what is the the, the line from Reddits to be, Mister Horse? No, sir. I don't like like him. (laughs) Uh, How can folks find you on social media? Uh, It is Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit. And yes, I am always mouthing off and doing other things on on Twitter. Um, But uh, come, it's fun. Follow me. Follow me on this grand adventure we call life. That's what I say, Jim. (laughs) Well, at, at the very least, follow him so you you get to meet you know Nova the Wonder Dog. Yes. Um, Nancy wants me to remind you on the Jim Hill Media side, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media, and over at Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. Thank you for listening, and Drew and I will be back soon.